Christmas sermon. You know how I love preaching Christmas sermons. So this one is entitled Christmas Peace. Two weeks ago, we talked about Christmas hope. Last week, we talked about Christmas love. The title of this sermon is Christmas Peace. We're going to look at a very Christmassy text, though you may not realize it, in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, if you want to open up there. I'll be working primarily from the New Living Translation this morning. We'll also be looking at Isaiah 9, revisiting that this morning, so you can open up there as well if you want. And we'll put these passages on the screen for you. So Colossians 1, Isaiah 9. We'll read some passages in a moment. First, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your holy word. Your word that is living and active and inerrant, true in all it teaches and asserts. The very word of God given to us. Thank you for the holiness that is before us, the truth that is before us. Would your truth do a deep work in us today? Thank you for the peace that is brought to us in Christ and explained to us in Scripture that it would take root in our hearts. We confess that we are people who are easily given to fear and discord and all the things that are contrary to peace, but you, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, have brought us peace. So, Holy Spirit, the teacher of all things, would you make this clear in our hearts and minds this morning and would you birth in us an exaltation and a joy in the person of Christ. Will we be thrilled with the truth of what he's done for us because of the love of God? Please help me, Lord, to teach and preach in a way that glorifies you and represents well your word and serves well your church. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start here by comparing... Uh, some passages from Isaiah that we've looked at the last couple weeks, and and this new text in Colossians. And we'll, we'll see the connectivity here in the Word of God. Promises, Christmas promises given to us in the book of Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came. And then Christmas fulfillment explained to us in the New Testament in the book of Colossians after Christ came, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. So we'll start with this familiar passage from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 2. God speaking to Israel says, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. You might remember Matthew picks up that passage and talks about it in Matthew 4. Verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. So the theme there is that uh, Israel had been experiencing dark days and really it was self-inflicted darkness due to their own rebellion against God, their wandering away from God, their own sin. There was inner darkness that they were experiencing because of their sin. There was external darkness they were experiencing because of the effects of sin reverberating through their culture. There was governmental and societal darkness that they were facing because of the general effects of sin within humanity. And God was making a Christmas promise to them that the days would not always be dark, that God himself 
would step into their darkness with the light of his son, Jesus Christ. And we see this kind of unfolding as we go to Colossians now and see the New Testament explain the fulfillment of this. Paul here in writing to the church in Colossae says in his introduction, he starts to pray for them. He says, we also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will all so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. There's that light motif, the light coming into the darkness. The light has come in Jesus Christ. We now, as followers, are living in the light. Verse 13. For he rescued us, from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. See how it was foretold in the prophet Isaiah that there was this light coming into this context of darkness and now we're told that the light has come, that this great transaction has happened, that through Christ we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. We see more of this sort of pairing happening as we go to latter verses in Isaiah 9. Very familiar one here. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. Someone say amen. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. So this prophecy, this promise that Christ would come and he would be supreme, that he would rule and reign, that he'd be God in the flesh who would set right everything that has gone wrong societally, systemically, governmentally in the world. We see this again reflected in this pairing in Colossians where we pick up where we, pick up where we left off, verse 15. It says that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That's Christmas, incarnation language, right? God in the flesh, baby Jesus. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Important verse here. And through him, that is through Christ, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Here's what we see happening. Christmas promises and Christmas fulfillments. Darkness in the world and God promising to step into the darkness in the light of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, God acting as peacemaker. 
God as the ultimate peacemaker who reconciles the whole world to himself, makes peace with, the text says, the whole world through the cross of Jesus Christ. The contention, the claim of the text is that we find peace in this world through the cross of Jesus Christ and peace in the world through the cross of Jesus Christ. Both personal and inner peace, external and circumstantial peace, and again, governmental and societal peace. Jesus would come as a light into the darkness and step into the world powers, the inner struggles, the conflict, and our alienation from God to reconcile us. Again, verse 20, read it again, it's important. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Look at what 2 Corinthians 5 says. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us a task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So because of God, because of love, excuse me, God wanted to make peace with a rebellious world. He wanted to reconcile to himself a world that was separated from him by sin. And the cross is the act of God's peacemaking, the place where God reconciles because it is at the cross where God beat sin, death, and the devil. Someone say, thank you, Jesus. Sin, death, and the devil. Look what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Again, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. The Bible teaches that the whole world was under the sway of these three powers, sin, death, and the devil. And that Jesus on the cross defeats these powers That is why Christmas is represented by light and by beautiful colors and by joyful songs and by ideas like joy and peace because the darkness is being dispelled by God through Christ. The whole world, the scriptures say, lies in the power of the evil one. And look at the state we were in before Christ rescued us as described in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Speaking of spiritual deadness, not being alive to a relationship with God. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our, own, of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But because of love, God, even though we were rebels and sinners, enemies of him, is endeavoring in Christ to make peace with us, bring us back to himself through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. So we read good news in passages like Hebrews 2. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, 
the Son also became flesh and blood. Jesus, the incarnation. For only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And look at Colossians chapter 2. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all our sins. Someone say, thank you, God. And he, look at this, he canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, talking about the devil and demons. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Listen, here's what the devil had on you. The devil had this record of sins that God himself has kept. I I got bad news for you. God is a cosmic bookkeeper. And he doesn't fudge the books. He doesn't like, you know, shuffle the numbers. He doesn't cook the books. Like he keeps a record of our sins, the scriptures say. And that these sins were our debt against God. And the wages of sin is death. What it earned us is spiritual death and eternal death. And the devil had this against us. Like, the, the, you know, this is like, that's these charges against us. And, and the enemy held it over our head. And God, because of love in the person of Christ, nailed that certificate of debt to the cross. And so that when Christ paid the price for our sins, it was removed as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea. God would remember them no more. And what he did in removing our sins is he made a public display of the enemy, it says. Let me tell you what that means. In ancient cultures, there was this wartime sort of, I don't know, habit or thing they did where the the victorious, the general of of the victorious army would bring the highest ranking officer of the defeated army, throw him on the ground in front of a victorious gathering, stand on the back of his neck and rub his face into the dirt as a show of ultimate victory and shaming him publicly. That's what that phrase is. That's what God did to Satan when Jesus took our sins upon the cross and rose from the dead, he publicly shamed the enemy and took away from him any charges that were against us. Jesus stood on the back of the devil and said, victory, victory for my people. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. And now because of that, because of what God has done in Christ on the cross, his death and his resurrection, we can have in this life peace and real peace in the Prince of Peace. And there's a few different ways that we can experience peace. Perhaps the most profound way is in the idea that we now, because of the cross, have peace with God. You know, peace with God is the real issue. I don't care what else happens in your life. I don't care how many things you amass. I don't care how many... accomplishments you get to or, or what you have around you, what good fortune befalls you or how often things go to your way, your way, excuse me, when you get to the end, one thing will matter. Peace with God. When we face eternity, one thing will matter and that is peace with God. So picking up again in our text in Colossians, that last verse and moving on to new ground, again, through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. 
You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. Look at this. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Wait a minute, think on that for a moment. Because one thing that we aren't in and of ourselves is holy and blameless. What has happened in the cross is a great exchange. God as peacemaker, as reconciler, has given Christ to pay the price for our sins. He took our sins upon us and then he has given us his righteousness. So our standing before God is now in Christ and who he is. So that when we stand before God, having confessed our sins and been forgiven through Jesus Christ, we stand before him holy and blameless. Not just like, it's not as though we're just like sliding into his presence or into heaven by the skin of our teeth. It's not as though we're going to get to the gates and we're going to be like, Pete, dude, I know it got messy down there, but bro, you just got to slide me in the back gate, dude. And then we get before God and God's like, yeah, no, I guess you could come in. Listen, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, our sins are removed. We are washed white as snow and we now have a standing in him and his righteousness is given to us. So we stand before God holy and blameless at total peace with God. God viewing us with favor. Are you guys awake? Is it too warm in here? Because listen, if this don't turn you on, you ain't got no switch. (laughs) Look what it says in Romans chapter five. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, that is justified by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. That's grace. Where now we stand And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory in this life and in the life to come. Because of our standing in Christ. Our standing, it says, is one of undeserved privilege. We know we've fallen short. We know we've sinned against God. We know we've erred, but we have through Christ undeserved privilege. So he lavishes his kindness on us. We stand before him in grace and in peace. And this is important because life doesn't always feel this way. You know, sometimes we blow it so bad and we blow it so repeatedly that we and the devil convince ourselves, God will never have me back now. God can't possibly be pleased with me. I can't possibly have this standing of favor before him. But that's not what's true. I know that life and our own actions sometimes feel that way, but this is what is true. And listen, brothers and sisters, we should never dare hold against ourselves what Christ paid for with his blood on the cross. Our standing before him is in grace. We make this false dichotomy like, oh, sometimes I feel like a good Christian, sometimes a bad Christian. There is no such thing as good Christian and bad Christian. There is only the beloved of God in Christ, holy and blameless, a standing in grace, peace with our maker, upon whom he lavishes his kindness. And this is an unshakable thing. You know, life feels very frail sometimes and our own actions feel very precarious at times and 
Life can leave us feeling beat up and wondering about these sort of things. But God is committed to this. Remember, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Look at God's heart for this in Isaiah. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, right? Though everything might fall apart, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Through Christ and faith in him, we are in a covenant with peace with God. And it withstands the turmoil of this life and it withstands the test of time. So that we can experience in the here and now, not just later then, in the here and now, we can experience true inner rest and inner joy. Remember David, King David? Remember David? David was an awesome guy. He like defeated Goliath and he like beat up bears and lions and Philistines and all this stuff. But David was also a wretch. Remember David's sin? Stole a man's wife, got her pregnant, had the husband killed. King David. But look what he says about the joys of forgiveness in Psalm 32. How blessed, happy, it could be translated, but like really good happy, like Bible happy. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. Now look what he says about when he was hiding and staying in his sin. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Body wasted away. Another translation says, my life juices were drained from me as in a summer heat. Like he was just languishing in his very being because he was staying in this place of guilt, not confessing his sins to the Lord. And then he says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. That's the conviction of the Spirit. Anybody relate to that? Conviction of the Holy Spirit? My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Felt like he was dying under the weight and the reality of his own sins. But look what happens next. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Here's confession and repentance. And, and it says, and God was mad at him for the rest of his life. Is that what it says? Does it say that? And God held a grudge against him for a long time. Does it say that? And God made him do a bunch of good stuff to work off all of the bad stuff he has done. Does it say that? What does it say? You read it together. Read it with mas ganas. Read it with a little more gusto. Read it together. How blessed is the man whose sins have been forgiven. So then, like, David, having just, like, confessed and repented and experienced forgiveness, then he's, like, telling everybody, dude, you got to do this. Verse 6, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. He says to God, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. He went from this inner rot, this feeling like his very essence was draining away under the weight and the guilt of his sins to this place of freedom and life. You surround me with songs of deliverance. 
How blessed, how happy is a man whose sins are forgiven. David, through the forgiveness of God, experienced real inner peace. And that also means this peace that's been brought to us in Christ. That also means that we can, in this lifetime, experience peace even in the midst of turmoil or difficulties, the storms of life. Anybody know about those? Look what it says in Isaiah 26. The steadfast of mine, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. The steadfast of mine. So the person, follower of Jesus, whose mind is fixed on the person of Jesus Christ, on God and who God is and what God has done for him. God will keep him in perfect peace, even in the difficult times of life. This is an incredible promise that we need to lay hold of. New Testament equivalent of this in Philippians chapter four. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Look what it says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Look at this promise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a beautiful promise. Because listen, life throws a lot our way that makes us anxious, brings us discord, disharmony, difficulty. And when we get caught up in all those, you know, we have to live through those things. Like that's a a real part of our experience. But when those things become our focus, that's when we begin to lose this peace of the Prince of Peace. Remember Peter? Peter walked on water. Like Peter gets a bad rap a lot of times because he's a big mouth and he always put his foot in his mouth and he denied Jesus three times and he did all these silly things. But like Peter walked on water and Peter was the only one other than Jesus who walked on water. And Pete was the only one with the guts who when he's in the boat and there's a storm, looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. Like that was a gutsy move, you know what I mean? Like there's a big storm. It says in the Greek literally that the boat was under the waves. Listen, you don't want the boat under the waves. You want the boat on the waves. This was a bad situation. And in the midst of that storm, Peter, seeing Jesus clearly, gets out of the boat, steps on water, and he begins to walk on the very circumstances that moments prior were threatening his very existence. He's walking on him now. Can you imagine the other guys in the boat? They're like, what? Peter, oh my gosh, I want to do that. And Peter's walking on the waves. Eyes fixed on Jesus. But then it says that Peter noticed once again the wind and the waves around him. And Peter began to sink into those circumstances. The lesson being, keep your eyes on Jesus. There's always going to be wind. There's always going to be waves. Sometimes, honestly, the boat's going to go under. That's life. Sometimes the boat goes under. But Jesus is the one who allows us to walk on the water and he himself is there. Jesus is the one who calms the storm. So, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, 
By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests made known to God. When, when you're anxious, come to God and tell him about it. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, I mean, it's beyond what we can understand. It transcends it. We often have a lack of peace because we don't understand what's going on. And how could he do that? And why would she do this? And what if that happens? And how am I going to make ends meet? And how will this illness end? And all that stuff that's very real. But God is promising a peace that's beyond all that we don't know or can understand. And it will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what I need. You ever been up all night with your mind racing? You ever been heartsick with concern? I need the peace of God to guard me in those times. And then we're given this helpful little tool in the next couple of verses. Let me get a drink of water first. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Or as it says in the NASB, set your mind on these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace, the God of peace will be with you. Man, there's a good tool. Whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely. You know what? That's hard to find in our world. I, I, I don't know where to find that other than two places. My wife. Score, right? Come on, throw me that one, people. You guys are the toughest crowd today. My wife's in the back row. You're supposed to be like, oh yeah, good one. Thanks, brother. Okay, what I really meant was the only place I could find that other than my wife is Jesus, who is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admiral, excellent, and worthy of praise. That's why I started out before even the sermon saying, listen, in 2017, you got to read your Bibles, people, because this is where we see and discover and taste and feast on the fact that Jesus is true and noble and right and pure and excellent and worthy of praise. And the promise that accompanies that is that the God of peace will be with us and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What do we love calling Jesus at Christmas time? Starts with an I. Emmanuel, God with us. The God of peace with us. And this is God's heart for his people that we in Christ would experience peace. Look at God's heart for his people represented as he speaks these words to Jerusalem from Isaiah again. For thus says the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her like a river. There's that phrase, beautiful phrase, peace like a river. And the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed and you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees. The idea of like God caring for us as his own little baby. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Listen to the tenderness of God toward his people. It's usually represented in scripture as God the Father. But God has this tenderness that's like a mother. Listen, there's no tenderness and there's no love like the love of a mom. There's no embrace like the embrace of a mom. It's God's heart toward his people. Verse 14, then you will see this and your heart will be glad and your bones will flourish like the new grass. And the way that we experience this is through Jesus. Jesus talked about this in the book of John when he said in John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Peace. My peace I give to you, Jesus says. Think about his peace. You know, we experience a lack of peace because there's things that we don't know. There's things that we control. There's things that we don't see. And there's, th- there's things that overwhelm us. Jesus is, never over- Jesus is never overwhelmed. Jesus sees all things. He's always in control. And he knows all things. Therefore, Jesus has perfect peace. And Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. The world can only give temporarily. The world can only give circumstantially. Jesus gives a peace that transcends the drama of this life. He repeats that idea two chapters later in John 16, 33, when he says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble. Take heart. Take courage. I have overcome the world. So the promise of scripture is that even in this crazy world, we can experience peace in Jesus. The challenge of life and what comes to the forefront in this season is whether or not we will make room for Jesus as a Prince of Peace. Isn't it weird that that first Christmas night there was no room in the end? The Prince of Peace come to earth and there wasn't room. You know, but our lives are often like that. They get crowded out with our anxieties. Our heart gets crowded with what's troubling us, with the drama, with our own failures, with the way that people have failed us. We let our hearts get crowded with all this stuff and there's no room for the Prince of Peace. Where do we need to let the Prince of Peace in this Christmas season? And then pursue Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to experience peace on an increasing basis in a more regular way. Part of what Jesus does for the world is he shows us the way of peace. Here's John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, prophesying about Jesus showing us the way of peace in Luke chapter one. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. There's that light, dark imagery again to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, primarily, that's the way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way that we have ultimate peace, peace with God, is through Jesus Christ. But then he begins to lead us in a life of experiencing peace. God's will for us is that even though there's wind and waves and difficulty, we would experience this peace. And what's crazy I've found in my own life when I get my eyes on the wind and the waves is we can miss the way of peace. And it's a sad thing. Think of Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem when they missed this way of peace. Look what he said later in Luke. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, Jesus saw the city and wept over it, saying, if only you had known in this day the things which make for peace. Sometimes we look around in our own lives and we look on our lives behind us and we can say, gosh, if only I had known the way that would have made for peace in that time. So the prayer becomes, Jesus, lead me in the way of peace. In your will for my life. This is what God wants to do. Look at his heart expressed again in the book of Isaiah. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Listen. I am the Lord your God 
who teaches you what is good for you and leads you along the path you should follow. Hear that, adults. I have a two-year-old and I'm constantly having to convince her of what is good for her. I will convince you, there's my dentist sitting back there. She wants gum nonstop. Gum, gum, chew on gum. My dentist would be horrified at this truth. We're constantly having to convince her, Fifi, you cannot sleep all night with gum in your mouth for many reasons. Listen, we're as silly as two-year-olds in this lifetime. We often don't want what is good for us. And God loves us and in Christ wants to lead us in the way of peace. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is good for you and leads you along the paths you should follow. Oh, that you would listen to my commands. Then you would have had peace flowing like a gentle river. There's that phrase again. And righteousness rolling over you like the waves of the sea. Anybody know that feeling? Man, if only I had done what God was leading me to do in that situation. If only I had obeyed the Lord then. Then I would have experienced peace like a river and righteousness like the waves of the sea. But this life can throw us some, some tough spots. And sometimes it's confusing, the way of peace. That's why, brothers and sisters, we seek the Lord. We read scripture. We take these things to God in prayer, knowing that our standing before him is in grace, that we have peace with him, that he views us in love, holy and blameless in Christ. And we can say to him, Christ, show me the way that I ought to live. As your beloved child, show me the way of peace and righteousness. And in the end, when Jesus comes again, he will once and for all set right everything that has gone wrong. This is what we call second Christmas. First Christmas was looking forward to Jesus coming the first time and establishing his kingdom. Second Christmas is Jesus coming again to establish the fullness of his kingdom, to set right everything that has ever gone wrong, to restore all things. Remember what it said in Colossians, that through Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself and making peace with all things through the cross. Because on the cross, God defeats sin, death, and the devil. And when Jesus comes again, we will no longer have to deal with sin. It will be vanquished. The devil will be ultimately banished and death will be fully abolished. So there will be restoration in the world around us. This is when we'll experience Isaiah 9, verse 7. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne on his ancestor David for all of eternity. You know that the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again. The second coming, second Christmas. And when he does, he will rule and reign on earth visibly and tangibly in righteousness and in justice. And it won't be the Obama government. It won't be the Trump government. It won't be the united nothing. It will be Jesus ruling and reigning in all of creation. And so in that day, at second Christmas, things will look different. Isaiah chapter 2 says this. 
The Lord will mediate between nations and center and settle, excuse me, international disputes. We need that right now. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, meaning no more weapons, no more war. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Peace on earth. It's only going to be in Jesus. And that day is coming. And look, when he comes and does away with sin and its reverberating effects, the way that creation relates to itself and the way that we relate to one another and all created things relate to one another will be fully transformed. Look again in the prophet Isaiah and here's where we end. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. That's not any politicians, you know. That's Jesus. In that day, look, everything's different. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze next to the bear and the cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. Look what it says next. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child put its hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Listen, you know what this is? This is a world transformed. No more crying, no more pain, no more sin, no more sickness, no more death, no more evil, no more violence, no more corruption. No one's going to say, where's my little two-year-old? Where, where'd she go? I'm panicking. Ah, she's in the cobra den. No problem. <laughs> Jesus is ruling and reigning. No problem. Verse 9, nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. Filled with the knowledge of the Lord. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. Only Jesus, the Prince of Peace. That's why the angels announce that first night. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Because Jesus, the Prince of Peace, has come for us. So, bring your difficult places to Jesus today. Bring toward him those pathways that are leading away from peace. Bring your anger and your bitterness to him today. Bring your anxieties to him. Bring your fear about the future to him. Bring your concern about the nations and national situations. Bring your illness to him. Bring the fear of death to him. Bring all these things to Christ. Whom have we in heaven but him? And follow hard after Christ and let him meet you in these places and give you the peace of God. Lord, that it would be such that you would meet us in these truths before us and bring us the peace of your person. Thank you for the peace that we have with God. Thank you that you rule and reign over our circumstances and that you rule and reign over the future. Thank you that you love us and you nurture us. Jesus, bring peace, please, by your love into our stormy places, our hard, confused, scary places.
and teach us to walk in the path of peace. As we seek you this morning in worship and in praise and in holy communion and in prayer, meet us, God. Holy Spirit, pour the love of the Father into our hearts. We pray for those this Christmas season for whom peace seems elusive. people in our church this week who lost family members. There's people in our church battling cancer. There's people in our church right now battling addiction. There's people that are utterly alone. We say together with them that Jesus, we need you, the Prince of Peace. With your sovereignty and your love and your grace, to step into our waves and our wind, our addictions, our illness, our grief, our loneliness, and meet us with the love of God. Lead us, Lord, into green pastures and beside still waters. Prepare even for us a banqueting table in the presence of our enemies. Hide us in the shadow of your wing and uphold us with your righteous right hand. Teach us a way of peace. Pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.